Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The history of the slave trade in the U.S. is explored at the Illinois Holocaust Museum's exhibit, Purchased Lives, the American Slave Trade, 1808 to 1865. The exhibit features material from New Orleans, the hub of the U.S. slave trade. On Thursday, the Holocaust Museum features a panel discussion on the lingering impact of the American slave trade. We're going to get a sneak preview of the discussion today. With me are some of the panelists. Betsy Leonard is Vice President of Engagement for the Heartland Alliance, and she'll be moderating the panel. Nice to meet you, Betsy. Nice to meet you. And Quentin Williams is here. He's Field Building Project Manager for the Heartland Alliance. Thanks for joining us, Quentin. Thank you for having me. And Amanda Friedman is here. She is the Assistant Director of Education at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. Good to see you, Amanda. You too. Um, remind us a little about the exhibit, Amanda, because it's been going for a while now, and it ends mm-hmm. on August 25th. But um, Purchased Lives, the American Slave Trade, 1808 to 1865, um, what do people see if they go and see it? Visitors to the exhibition see the period of American history after the transatlantic slave trade ended, but when slavery continued. And so the trading of humans within the boundaries of the United States continued for almost 50 years after that period. And so through documents, through photographs, through artifacts, we look at the economic and social reasons that the practice of slavery was so entrenched and so difficult to end, but also at the human impact, the people, the families who were taken away from each other, from everything they had ever known, had their lives disrupted, and then had to find a way to continue on to, after emancipation, hopefully reunite. That was unfortunately very rare for these families, um, but really the human impact of those years. And you've got amazing artifacts and first-person accounts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell people about one of them. I think the most impactful artifact that we have is an iron collar that weighs about 12 pounds that has uh, two kind of metal arms that extend out from it that have bells on the end of them. And this was a collar that was placed on runaway slaves who were recaptured. So people who attempted to escape and were caught were forced to wear this heavy, uncomfortable collar, both as a punishment and as a deterrent, both to prevent them from attempting to escape again, but also to deter others from trying to to secure their own freedom. To kind of ease into the lingering impact of the American slave trade, I know that uh, at the end of the exhibition, you have a lost friends ad uh, situation, which is about Chicago. This is uh, an, an, the exhibit is mostly about New Orleans and came from New Orleans. But mm-hmm. this Lost Friends ads uh, explain what they were and how they kind of start bringing it up to speed for people. The Lost Friends ads were classified ads that were placed in primarily African American newspapers around the country in the years after the end of the Civil War. So from beginning in 1865. People would place classified ads with whatever information they had about their loved ones who they had been separated from. Um, These are really heartbreaking because of the lack of detail. People didn't know if their family members had been sold or traded again. They didn't know if their names had been changed. They didn't know where to find them, but they scrapped together whatever details they had to attempt to, to reunite. And I think the most heartbreaking thing about these ads is that 
They began in 1865 with emancipation and the end of the war and continued to be placed until about 1913. That's amazing. Um, and that talks about the lasting legacy of this. And um, to get into the more contemporary end of the discussion, um, Betsy Leonard, the, the Heartland Alliance, I imagine you see something that you could call uh, contemporary uh, oppression mm-hmm. uh, every day doing social work. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, You see the disparities in your face. Mm-hmm. We do. And um, one of the things that's been really um, powerful with us with this partnership with the Illinois Holocaust Museum is the ability um, to connect the past to, to the current situation. And I think one of the things we recognize and we hope people will come out to the panel discussion tomorrow is our opportunity to resist the sort of polarizing forces and to come together and learn from the past. And so when you think about um, the disparities that we see, we, dis- we see disparities in almost every indicator of social well-being today, and it's happening in plain sight. So how do we, um, how do we step up? And, and tomorrow we'll hear directly from people who have their own life experience as well as their own expertise. And uh, Quentin Williams is here, uh, field project manager for the Heartland Alliance. Um, tell us, uh, what are some of the disparities you're concerned about and the things you're concerned about here? Yeah, um, I think one of the biggest things that is pressing and of major concern uh, to me, because you have um, this history of dehumanization. And I, I think what Amanda was saying, it's essentially what it was. It was dehumanization that was then um, institutionalized. Right. So then it becomes the order of the day, the norm and people. It looks to certain people that this is just the way things are. And so we have slavery and then we have after slavery, Jim Crow, and then we have segregation. And then we have this interruption of the civil rights movement. Right. That, you know, brought some of these protections. However, um, in starting at the end of 1970, we see the advent of mass incarceration. Right. So now. Um, if you have a criminal record and you're um, black, right, and those protections that came from the civil rights movement no longer exist, right? So when we talk about disparities, we know that um, black and brown folks are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, which means by implication they're overrepresented in a contemporary form of dehumanization when they leave prisons, not to mention the conditions in the prisons themselves, but then once they leave, they are now subjected to very similar uh, conditions that folks who um, were enslaved in the antebellum South and then afterwards, the same thing, discrimination out over here, uh, you belong over here, you're not deserving of uh, the dignity uh, that we should be affording to people. So that's what I'm most concerned about today. You know, it seems like U.S. history is like you push down on one place and <laughs> the, the, the bad thing just keeps rolling over to another, morphing into something else. Indeed. Uh, how, you got any, how do we stop the morphing? Because right now, you know, you talk about dehumanization. We're that's getting right. a fine lesson in it uh, every day. That's right. Um, I think one of the ways, and I'm a little bit biased because I love, love, I think policy. So a lot of these things, um, a lot of the 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 so-called collateral consequences that we see from incarceration, I say so-called because collateral implies that there's no intention behind it. But I think in some cases there are intentionally, uh, there are some intentional um, barriers placed before people. But 
all, a lot of these things rest in policy and statutes and legislation. And people think like it's on paper, but policies speak. They talk. They say who's worth something and who's not, right? When every time a person with a record looks at an application and it asks you, have you been convicted of a felony? That one, uh, you know, it goes through their mind and it, it says like, hmm, am I, am I worthy of this job or this house or this life insurance or this thing? So um, W.E.B. Du Bois once said like in, in his, one of his books, Souls of Black Folks, I think he said, how does it feel to be a problem? And I think people still feel that way. So to what we can do about it is to dismantle those uh, collateral consequences via um, a policy and, and, and legislation. And I think as we do that, a uh, narrative change, because I do think underneath all of the policies that are destroying lives is the same underlying thing that was there to justify slavery, which is these people are not deserving these people this this i this creation of racial difference that still exists and is codified in law so we can get rid of it but we also have to go to the foundation and sort of um change the narrative about this this racial difference and approach it from a human rights lens um betsy yeah so if if quentin loves policy i love (laughs) stories and i think um i think uh, the power comes in proximity. Mm. So in my work, I've been really privileged to to be in proximity with people I normally wouldn't, just because my, our paths don't normally cross, especially in a city as segregated as Chicago. So tomorrow night, people have the opportunity to hear firsthand from people whose stories um, will really inspire them, and not simply because they are inspirational stories, but because it, it speaks to the power we have when we provide very basic supports and care and concern for one another. So, for example, um, you know, when we think about dehumanization, we think about somebody who's no who's not human, right? So, the people that um, we come in contact with every day at Heartland Alliance prove to us that not only are they worthy of the dignity um, that that our country bestows on them through our laws, through our constitution, but they have a level of character. They do more every day. The effort that they expend to provide for their families, to stay safe, to um, give their children opportunity to um, be safe themselves, it, it's monumental. And um, we don't often understand, I think, what people actually go to go through each and every day just to just to exist, ways that many of us take for granted. And so the opportunity to hear firsthand stories, this is what the museum does, I think, so eloquently with Holocaust survivors. We've talked a little bit about the power of pairing um, Holocaust survivors with, for example, young men on the south and west sides who are experiencing the greatest violence um, that we've seen in, in Chicago and how the oppression happening in plain sight is a shared experience regardless of the decades that separate them. There is a lot more to us in common than we often get to experience, and so the the privilege of proximity is one small thing that happens tomorrow night and in panels like that. Um, So who else is going to be there on the panel? So we have um, several of our colleagues joining us. Um, one woman, Latanya um, Jennifer Sublet, is currently actually a Heartland Alliance um, staff member 
Um, but she speaks on behalf of the Chicago Torture Justice Center about her own experience um, with CPD and, and the implications in her own life. Um, Quinton will be on the panel as well and has um, a lot of expertise, of course, in, in the criminal justice system. And, and we'll also be talking with Floyd Stafford and Marlon Chamberlain, both of whom are project managers for a new initiative in Chicago called Ready Chicago. And Ready Chicago looks at um, men um, who are most likely the survivors of gun violence and provides opportunities for combining employment with cognitive behavioral therapy um, in an 18-month program. And these young men are, um, against all odds, transforming their lives, and the success of those programs are really profound. But they also are both men who um, have their own experience with the criminal justice system and have been able to transform their lives um, regardless of the systemic barriers they face. It's, 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 as I said, inspirational and transformational to hear from them. And all four have, um, I think, not only will give us the gift of proximity to their stories, but um, will offer up real opportunities for people to get engaged. I'm talking with Betsy Leonard from the Heartland Alliance and Quentin William from the Heartland Alliance, and we're discussing uh, their uh, panel discussion uh, that's going to take place tomorrow night at the Holocaust Museum, The Lingering Impact of the American Slave Trade. It's part of the Holocaust Museum's Purchased Lives exhibit, which runs through August 25th. Uh, I you know, are, do you feel like these people who are making these heroic efforts that are, you're having on the panel that, that manage to find some help and assistance, are they the exception or are they the rule? Is that, um, uh, you know, is it, uh, you know, should we be optimistic or should we say, well, you know, that wasn't, uh, you know, th- this still isn't enough? Well, I think... I think we should be optimistic, right? I think we should always approach things from a place of possibility, right? That's the only way um, that we can move forward is is with hope and possibility. I think that um, my co-panelists would, would reject the idea of being exceptional, right? Um, I think they would say that they had opportunities and people and support that you know, quite frankly, a lot of folks leaving uh, jails and prisons don't have. And and honestly, I've seen over the last years, even with my own stories, that that exceptional um, um, narrative can actually be quite harmful uh, to the collective, right? So, you know, they can look at Quentin and say, oh, Quentin has been to jail and prison and Quentin is now a doctoral candidate. Quentin is doing all of these wonderful things. Oh, great. Um, tell the rest of the world how you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. And I think that that is a co-opting of the Herculean effort that it takes, um, and not just by individuals, mm-hmm. but by the community. The reason why I'm here today is not because of something that I'm Superman. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of cool, but I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the help and the support that I received that we need to make the norm um, is 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 something that's lacking. The last thing I'll say regarding that is that the other reason that these folks aren't the exception, there are tons of people. Um, I think the narrative also that we need to challenge is that folks are just always just down and out and just never experiencing prosperity or joy or peace at all. Um, that's just not true, right? Um, folks leave in prison, black folks, brown folks, anybody, they're not a monolith and there's a bunch of heterogeneity within groups, you know, so, yeah. 
Quentin Williams is field pro- building project manager for the Heartland Alliance. Betsy Leonard is vice president of engagement for the Heartland Alliance, and she'll be leading the panel discussion on the lingering impact of the American slave trade. It is tomorrow night at the Holocaust Museum, and uh, you can see the exhibit as well, Purchase Lives, the American Slave Trade, 1808 to 1865. And uh, thanks also for joining us, Amanda Friedman. And, and tomorrow, I, or Saturday, I understand, is a free day at the museum to see the exhibit and uh, lots more. It is. The 10th of every month this year to celebrate our 10th anniversary is free admission. And so that includes this Saturday, August 10th. Well, congratulations on the Purchase Lives exhibit and all the surrounding uh, programming that you've done. It's been outstanding. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we are going to have uh, Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson, and I'll talk with one of the women who lead the Afro-Cuban band OCAN. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. During Worldview's Great Lakes bus tour last month, our team visited the TD Sunfest in London, Ontario. It's a huge world music festival that Catalina Maria Johnson, our Global Notes contributor, invited us to. And while we were there, Catalina introduced us to a band called OCAN, and it's coming to Chicago and performing at the Old Town School of Folk Music on Wednesday, next Wednesday night at 8.30, so that's a week from tomorrow today at 8.30. And Catalina and I spoke with one one of the band members in a tent on the festival grounds at Sunfest, so you'll hear a lot of jazzy riffs in the background. We're accompanied by Magdalis Savigné, all the way from Santiago de Cuba. I've had the pleasure of visiting that lovely city on the furthest easternmost part of Cuba and a founding member of OCAN, which is based in Toronto and also co-led and co-founded by Elizabeth Rodriguez, a violinist uh, from Havana. So you have yeah. the both. I know the um, uh, the cities that they're always against each other. It's pretty much yeah, rivals. You're bringing it together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were rivals back in Cuba. <laughs> and also, I um, you're a percussionist and a very, very, very uh, extraordinary percussionist. And Elizabeth is an extraordinary violinist. Um, but also, you've you've also been kind of involved in other bands, uh, Jim yes. Burnett's uh, Maqueque yes. in Toronto, and also Battle of Santiago. So yes. this is, and now finally, Ocan. So tell us a little bit about the meaning of the word Ocan and kind of your musical vision for Ocan. Yeah. So Ocan means heart in Afro-Cuban uh, dialect. We wanted to pick a name that actually. Um, resemble what we are, what we want to do with our music, which is like it's uh, because we're classically trained, 
Um, we know like orchestral music and all, but it's also the Cuban folklore and popular Cuban music uh, that, ev- that the whole world knows. Um, it's uh, undoubtedly it's it's in our blood, so we have to do that. We have mixes of different genres in our music, and then the influences that we got uh, when we first moved here to Toronto. I mean, to Canada, which is like it's a really wide multicultural uh, country. So it's like it's. Uh, it's impossible not to be uh, influenced by different uh, people, different cultures. Yeah. Wow. I know, and the, and, and yet it, it sounds very rooted. Definitely has like that classical polish. Yes. But then gets very jazzy at times too. That too. Yeah. yeah. You know, like music, we, we don't like uh, be put in a, in a box. You know, like it's, it's it was so hard to places like when we first started because they were saying like yeah they're world but then it's not world enough and then you say yeah they're jazz but then it's not jazz enough. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's kind of hard, but that's exactly what we like like no boxes no labels we play the music from our hearts what we want to play uh, me and elizabeth we do the compositions in the band and um and then we we just want everybody to feel at least that they have something in common with us even if you're from different cultures like we have turkish songs like put into cuban perspective we have brazilian we have uh, well of course cuban but we have like from everywhere all, all over the world in Spain we have so many influences in Cuba as well so imagine once you move here it's like it's a real deal so that's exactly what we want in our music what's it like being two women leading a band I, I can't think of many uh, really it's Cuban <laughs> bands that uh, come to mind that have two women leading the band yeah there are not many um Usually there's a stereotype with the Cuban female Cuban bands. <laughs> you have to look the certain way and then you have to play a certain genre called salsa. Everybody likes it. But then that's what you're supposed to play or sing, not even play, unless you do a girl band. So you're supposed to be part of a girl band. In our band, we're the only two females. Everybody else is the guys. Like we play with guys, women. Like We don't care. Uh, music has no gender, right? So that's exactly what we're trying to do. Being two female leaders hard <laughs> and uh, it's a man's world I mean like it's a it's an industry like you have to look a certain way you have to be skinny uh, you have like sometimes you know and uh, but still still it's, it's a challenge but we we don't stop by that like I don't care no no complaints uh, no excuses we're gonna do it and it's hard work but that's what, what, what else are you gonna do right <laughs> And how did you get all the way from Havana and Santiago to oh. Cuba? How did that happen? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> um, well, in Cuba, within Cuba, the laws, you're not supposed to move from one province to another. I know, ridiculous. That's the thing. If you're from Santiago, you're not supposed to move from Havana. You're not supposed to work in Havana. You need a work permit. You need an address in Havana, like something ridiculous like that. But then I moved. I, I was studying at the University of Arts in Havana, which is ISA, what we call ISA. And um, I graduated from there, and I stayed in Havana. Like, I didn't go back to Santiago. And my whole family is in Santiago. So uh, there, I know, there was more opportunity in Havana. Havana is the capital. Uh, there's a few opportunities that reach the provinces. Uh, Havana is the heart of Cuba. So I stayed there. I started working, which was hard, too, because in my um, instrument, which is percussion, women are not encouraged to play percussion. It's and mostly in fact, piano. Some of the drums you're not supposed to touch as a no, woman. No, yeah, correct? the drums some I play them. called the bata drums. Uh, I'm not supposed to be playing them. They are sacred for the religion, but I play. I don't play them in a religion. 
religious ceremony. I play them artistically, but I still get like the backlash from, uh, I'll, I'll, let's say, guys in the in the religion because I'm a woman playing those instruments. But well, you know. Uh, and then to Toronto. Toronto was it is home. Toronto, Toronto was home since I first stepped foot here. Um, so welcoming, you know. I don't know. It was it was fantastic. Here, it didn't matter if I play percussion, violin, singing, whatever. It was about skill. It was about talent. Um, people were calling me from everywhere. They're like, "Oh, you're from Cuba. Oh, whatever. Uh, let me see what you can do. Like, do you play this only this kind of music?" And I said, "No. I could, you know, it opened my head to different." things different music so I didn't stay with I didn't stick with the Cuban part I actually went over I, I started working with a Turkish woman uh, Turkish music traditional Turkish music the Jewish community uh, I mean sky's the limit Brazilian Spanish everywhere that definitely uh, is influenced in our music nowadays with Okan so many of your songs are very crafted very polished but one of the most beautiful songs is on YouTube and it's just you and Elizabeth uh, with just a little bit of percussion you know using the palms of your hand and it's Canto de Arare so tell, tell us a little bit more about that song just because I think it's very beautiful and soulful yeah that actually is that intro that, that that's an intro of a song that we are gonna have in our upcoming CD on the fall um, the CD is called Espiral that's the name of that song. Uh, it's an Arara chant. Arara is one of the religions in Cuba, apart from the Yoruba and the Catholic religions. So it's an Afro-Cuban religion. And it's uh, actually, nobody sings those chants anymore. It's a really lost time, like pretty much dead. So we love the melodies, the, the songs, and we put them into a guajira, which is a, a genre in Cuban music, um, actually related to the countryside. And it's played mostly in the countryside, but it's, it, it has become uh, historically a big genre in Cuban music. So we actually fuse the two genres, like the Afro-Cuban one with the Guajira, uh, into one song. And that's the song that we call Espiral that is coming up. Yeah. And Arare is, is Arara. Arara, yes. <laughs> is the language also? Is the language. It's a nasal language that is not used anymore in the religion. But you can still have the melody. So nobody knows exactly what they mean. They, they know that they are prayers, but the actual meaning of the song nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, 
Is there is there something you'd consider a quintessential Okan song? Uh, Bon Laberinto is actually the main track from our EP. Our EP is called Laberinto. That song is about immigration, uh, the struggles of immigration that we, as first first generation immigrants, like we we get in these countries, like new culture, new language, everything. So uh, the suffering, but also. Um, challenges, you know, in different areas. Um, that song is pretty sad, but we use a wawanko, which is a, it's like a rap. <laughs> it's a very urban genre in Cuban music that is used to tell stories about what's happening in society, what's wrong with the government, things like that. So we are using it to tell a story of the struggles and what you miss back home and why did you choose a new place as your home now. So for us, that would be our, yeah, for now it's been our main song, yeah. <laughs> listeners to take away? What's, what's your vision of you and Elisabeth? What would you like your listeners to, to feel or take away based on your music? You know what? I want people to feel what we feel on stage. We have fun. We're playing with amazing musicians. Uh, Miguel de Armas on piano, Roberto Riveron on bass, uh, Frank Martinez on drums. Fantastic musicians. We want to um, we actually wanted people to get that chemistry that we have on stage. We want them to dance. We have a movement called Move Canada. Like here in Canada, you have to ask the audience to dance. But in the States, it's great. Like we've been to the States and it's fantastic. People just don't ask you for permission. But here in Canada, people are too polite to ask. So we actually encourage them to people stand up without dancing. There is no feeling with the music. So, Sunfest does yeah. pretty good on that score. Good. They're doing pretty good. I'm glad. Yes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're here at Sunfest in London, Ontario with Magdalise Savigny, and she is one of the co-leaders of OCAN. It's been a treat. I've, uh, I know everybody's in for a treat. We can't wait to see you in Chicago. Thank you. <laughs> can't wait to be in Chicago. That'll be great. <laughs> Del 
Okan performs in Chicago a week from today at the Old Town School of Folk Music, and they have the Catalina Maria Johnson stamp of approval for sure. Coming up after the break, Monica Ng hits Maxwell Street Market with Chef Rick Bayless. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Chicago's historic Maxwell Street Market has long been fueled by immigrants, first from Eastern Europe and the Mediterranean, then from the American South, and most recently from Mexico and Latin America. Chicago celebrated the market's immigrant culture last weekend. Let's take a tour of Maxwell Street with Worldview contributor Monica Eng and one of the market's biggest fans, master chef and Chicago restaurateur Rick Bayless. Thanks, Jerome. I'm here at the Maxwell Street Market with Chef Rick Bayless. Now, Rick, I've read that you really enjoy coming to Maxwell Street Market. What do you enjoy about it? Well, I like the vitality of it, and I like the smells of it, because this is street food, and, you know, one of the things that I really love about Mexico is that it's one of the great street food countries in the world, and because this market is so Mexican, um, you really do feel like, or at least I do, I feel like I'm in Mexico walking the streets, because you not only smell things searing on the hot plancha and the smell of tortillas being hand-pressed and baked on a coma. I mean, it's just so delicious smelling. And then you can also see a lot of great ingredients to use like what we're looking at right now. So we've got these gorgeous chilaca chilies. And these look like long... They're uh, long, dark green ones. When they dry, they become what's called a pasilla chili. Of course, jalapenos and serranos and gorgeous amounts of the tomatillos. Now, there's two kinds of tomatillos here, and this is super rare that you would see this. There's the yellow tomatillos that are grown mostly in the very high sections of the state of Mexico, like in Toluca. And it's the only place in Mexico that you'll see something like that. And you'll notice that these tomatillos here are the little tiny ones because they have the best flavor. So this is a very discerning crowd here. So if you're making a green sauce, do you want those yellow ones? It depends on where you're from. Okay. If you're from those highlands around Toluca, you want them because they're sweeter. But most of us are used to a, a tomatillo salsa being a really acidic thing because the green tomatillos are going to give you that acid that we all love, that almost uh, citrusy kind of acidity. Uh, but there's something that's really different. You'll also see a third kind of tomatillo over here that Big has a, a purple blush on it. 
that'll give you the acid, but it'll also give you this real deep herbal quality to it. And just look at these, the uh, verdolagas here, the purslane that you stew with the tomatillo sauce. That's one of my favorite things in the world. Put some little pieces of pork shoulder in there and make a stew out of the purslane, the tomatillos, and the pork, and it's just heaven. Purslane, some people might know, is the stuff that sometimes grows between the cracks of the it sidewalk. Sure, it certainly does. I live right next to the 606 uh, running trail park, and uh, there is so much purslane up there. And when I go walking or running up there, oftentimes I'll just stop and pick enough purslane to make my dinner with. So Wash it super you're, well. You're not supposed to do that, people, but I do it anyway. <laughs> yes, I wash it. <laughs> and, and so what are we looking oh, at here? Okay. These look like yeah. little prickly pears? These are prickly pears, and there's two different colors here. There's the white what they call the white ones. It's sort of a light green on the inside. And then ones that have that red blush on the outside are also a deep crimson color on the inside. Um, They're spectacular. I like the red ones better than I like the white ones. Um, But the white ones have a very refreshing flavor to them. And so some people will just take the insides of them out, blend it with some lime juice and water and touch of sugar and make a very refreshing beverage. All right. All right. So um, you'd mentioned you saw some cactus pads down here called nopales. Yes, I'm I'm looking past the cactus now. This is a nopal cactus. These are fairly large ones, but the cool thing that here at Maxwell Street Market is that you can find them uh, done the way that you would find them in a Mexican market, which means all of the spines are taken off and the exterior of it is cut off of each of the outside of each paddle as well. Saves you a lot of work. And so that's the hard part about it. So folks come to Maxwell Street Market and get some of this cactus that's already cleaned for you and then what I like to do is to brush it with some oil, sprinkle it with salt and grill it and then it's super delicious chopped up and put on your carne asada tacos. All right, what, now, what is that, this? Okay, this is again, this is why you come to Maxwell Street Market. So this is called Wausoncle. And in English, the name for it is dock. It's just kind of a... D-O-C-K. It's kind of a weed here. Um, But in Mexico, what they will do is to blanch it in salted water. You'll notice that it looks like a seed head's all connected together on stalks. Okay, so they'll pull it apart, leaving the stalks still on there and after they've blanched it, and then they will dip it into a batter and fry it, oftentimes stuffing cheese in before they batter it. Um, it's kind of a wacky thing served with pasilla chili sauce. It's like, it's a classic, especially of central Mexico, and you can find those fresh ingredients here at Maxwell Street. This okay. stuff over here, oh, this is the... So these are sort of wide okay. leaves. <laughs> round, um, I call them round. I think they're kind of round. So this is papalo, or in the full name, papalo calite. And it is the strongest herb I know. I sort of have to shy away from it because if I eat some of this herb right now, I will remember that I have eaten it in about six hours because I will continue to taste it all afternoon. So, But I will tell you, people from Puebla, this is the herb for the sandwiches that they make there that they call semitas. With a sesame bun. Uh, Yeah, it's got a sesame bun. The bun itself is called a semita, and then a semita preparada would be made into a sandwich, but they always put leaves of papalo in there. And when I go to Puebla, I eat it. Okay. When I'm here, I don't. Una hoja? 
Just okay. pull a leaf okay. off here. So it's very, mm. I think I say it's like cilantro on steroids. Yeah, it's like super strong. Super hard. strong. And there's a, another herb that they use in the same area that has a very similar flavor called pipicha or chipiche, in, depending on what state you're in. But it's a, it looks like a blade of grass, and it's as powerful as this. Amazing stuff. Now, uh, over here... You can see... Dried red flowers and tamarind. Right, okay. So we've got the hamica flowers. And if you'll look at the quality of them, they're not discolored. They're they're a deep, vibrant red. That's what you're really looking for when you want to make the best agua de jamaica or jamaica water. Which um, is that red it, drink that you see in Mexican restaurants. Yes, and everybody knows it because they've had it in herbal teas. Anytime you have an, a red herbal tea, then it will probably be jamaica that's making it red. Um, and it's got a cranberry-like flavor. I, I love the flavor of it. It's super simple to do because you just boil water, steep it for 20 or 30 minutes, um, sweeten it to your heart content. Some people in Mexico don't sweeten it at all. Um, and then it's going to be a really tangy drink. And I like it both ways, but typically it's more sweetened. This stuff I love because right in front of us here is cinnamon. So if you think right now about those barrels of drinks that you see in the street vendors in Mexico City, there will be a white one, a red one, and a brown one. The white one will be horchata, and it will be flavored with this cinnamon. So this is called true cinnamon. And what we usually find in the United States is really um, cassia bark. And cassia bark is those really hard sticks, I think best used for swizzle sticks or something like that. They have a really strong flavor. This is true cinnamon and it's very flowery in flavor. And so this would be mixed with usually rice and sugar blended and strained. So you've got the one that's cinnamon flavored, you've got the jamaica that we've already talked about, and then right past that is the tamarind pods. And you can buy tamarind pods, I mean you can buy tamarind already out of the pod, uh, certainly in Indian grocery stores and Thai grocery stores you can find that a lot. But this is the true pod. You take the bark off the outside of it, soak them in hot water, and then just use your hands to sort of dissolve. It feels a little bit like a sticky substance that's around the seeds but you just dissolve that off strain out the seeds and and any other fibers that you find in there and then sweeten it to your your own liking all right so you can make all three all three of them right here all right so let's go to the prepared foods okay what do you like to eat when you get here now i've been coming to maxwell street for 35 years okay and when it was used to be on maxwell street it was very much with the Mexican vendors around the outside. When it was moved over onto Canal Street, it pretty much became a Mexican market at that time. And what these stalls would do to really set themselves apart is to start making the tortillas by hand. And back in those days in Chicago, that wasn't common at all, even in the restaurants or anything. Since day we opened Frontera 32 years ago, we've always made them by hand, but people were like, why are you spending all that time and energy on something like that? But you could get the handmade ones at Maxwell Street, and that would draw people in. You could watch the abuelas making them by hand, or you could watch the ladies in the room. And there was this one place, uh, we'll see if it's here today, because usually it is, it's Ruby's. And Ruby's was my favorite from the beginning, because I had been living in Guerrero before I moved to Chicago, and Ruby was from Guerrero. And every week she made, this is back in the old days when they allowed stuff like this, but she would do grilled quail, which is a specialty in Guerrero. She would do grilled quail with this Guerrero-style mold. 
Chipotle. You can find them if you go into most of the Mexican grocery stores in Chicago. You'll find a tub of a mole paste called telolawapan. So she's from telolawapan, and she would make handmade telolawapan mole. And that was so fabulous to see because it really reminded me of something that was a regional specialty that you could only get here at Maxwell Street on a handmade corn tortilla, which I just love. So here they're doing huaraches and quesadillas. Now, if people have only had quesadillas made with flour tortillas, then they got to come to Mexico Street and taste what a real, what I would call like a Mexico City-style quesadilla is, which is a fresh-made corn tortilla with some cheese and maybe squash blossoms on the inside of it, Some maybe some roasted peppers like poblanos inside of it. Um, and then the huaraches are also a, a specialty of Mexico City. And they're here at Bernardo, they're also making the huaraches. They're like a big, well, huarache means sandal. So it's like the sole of a sandal. It's that kind of shape with a smear of beans that is padded right into the middle of it. There's the three drinks, by the way, uh, sitting right there. (laughs) So here we've got agua fresca that's not just those three. Uh, We talked about the jamaica, the tamarindo, and the horchata. And they do have horchata here, but they have a fresh pineapple one, a lemonade, because there's the confusion between Mexican Spanish and American English. English, limonada is what they would call it in Spanish, but it's really limeade because limon refers to a lime in Mexico. And then they have a fresh watermelon one. And then they have the bane of my existence here, which is chicharrón de harina. So uh, chicharrón, probably most of our listeners know that chicharrón is uh, crisp fried pork skin. And it's a laborious process. But when people start going, oh, it's too fatty and I don't want that much saturated fat or whatever, which I say, just eat less of it, okay, because it's really good. Um, But this is made from a flour base. It's actually made from tapioca. And then you fry them in your house and they puff up and they remind you of chicharrón, but they don't have any pork flavor to them at all. I guess you could say they're vegetarian. If they're, they're vegetarian chicharrón, which unfortunately I don't think should exist. So... <laughs> Right, so here, this is Manolo's, I believe, which I like. This is our go-to because the Ruby's line is always so long, it's probably so because long. of you. Now, okay, so they've got the gorditas and the huaraches here. So the gorditas are just the big round ones, and they've got their bean filling on the inside of them. And we've got the huaraches on the other side, and then we've got the quesadillas. Now, these quesadillas, for me, that represents Sunday morning in Mexico City because my favorite place to go on Sunday morning in Mexico City is the Lagunilla Market, which has all of the antiques in it. And so loads of people go there, but they've got all these great food vendors there as well and there's this one lady that makes just exactly what we're seeing here uh, but she does it with blue corn masa right now we're looking at a yellow corn masa um, but she makes this blue corn masa quesadillas that literally are like the food of gods i went to the the mercado ciudadanos and i got the same one right yes outside. yes wow. Well, and I have an apartment in Mexico City, and just at the end of my street, there's a lady that makes all this fabulous stuff from Blue Corn Masa. Okay, so what we're seeing right now is the end of the Ruby's line. I know. I would say 100 people. Well, oh, yeah, at least 100 people in line here. Come early, come late, I don't know. But there's always a line at Ruby's um, because their stuff is just so good. 
And now we've got the tamales Oaxaqueños, which is a really cool thing because most people only know the tamales that are made in corn husks and the Oaxacan tamales are made in banana leaves. And so this is a great place to be able to experience that because the leaf wrapper is not just a wrapper to contain the masa as it steams. It also flavors it. So a corn husk is going to give a mild flavor, but a banana leaf, because a banana is actually a type of herb, is really going to impart a, a gentle herbiness to the tamal. And you'll notice that these are considerably bigger than what you'd think, well, I could eat two or three or four tamales in a corn hut. These ones, you eat one. <laughs> These are bombazos. So uh, a bombazo is uh, really a Mexico City thing, and it amounts to a bun that's dipped in a red chili sauce and then seared on a griddle. Sometimes people say that when you have a bombazo, uh, you don't have to eat for a couple of days afterwards. <laughs> and I think I would kind of be in that camp. You can see that the bun is here and it's been dipped in the red chili sauce already. And it typically gets filled with potatoes and chorizo sausage. So it's a real stick to your ribs kind of thing. Usually not expensive. And people that are eating bombazos um, on the street in Mexico City typically are people that are about 20 years old. <laughs> young people eating the. I love yes. the lemon and cucumber and the vegetarian oh, this drinks. This is what I love because you start to see when you see this, the drinks on the street in Mexico City or here in the Maxwell Street Market that they veer toward being uh, like health drinks. So you could sort of think about them as a juice bar, and we always think about juice bars as being health giving. So here we've got a, a vegetarian water, and that's usually made with different kinds of greens. It might be spinach, and uh, there may be a little celery maybe have a little bit of green chili in it sometimes, but almost always nopal cactus. And nopal cactus is a real health food for anybody that is sort of pre-diabetic. If you eat a lot of nopal cactus, it will take you away from that. It's one of those glucose inhibitors, and so it's been known since time immemorial to be really good for you like that. And that's why they put it in those green vegetarian drinks. But they also have my favorite over there, which is just lime and cucumber. That's my favorite water. Lime, cucumber, a touch of sugar, and a bunch of water, and that's the refreshing drink of the summer for me. And you can also turn it into a sorbet that's pretty darn good, too. Well, Chef Rick Bayless here at the Maxwell Street Market. Thanks so much for talking to me. Oh, this is such a pleasure. I can't tell you how much I enjoy this because this is really Mexico for Chicago. And I just want everybody to come and support this market because it's unique. That was a lot of fun. Worldview contributor Monica Ang with Rick Bayless at the Maxwell Street Market made me hungry. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll feature First Nations people from Canada, and we'll hear from young people from the Arctic. We'll also hear from a survivor of survivor of the residential schools program in Canada. So stay tuned for Worldview tomorrow at noon. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.